The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Robert Thurman, is professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies at Columbia University, as well as co-founder and president of Tibet House U.S. A close friend of His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, for over half a century, Bob is the first ordained American Buddhist monk in the Tibetan tradition. He's a passionate activist for the plight of the Tibetan people, a skilled translator of Buddhist texts, and an inspiring writer of popular books on Buddhism. His newest book is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. Bob Thurman, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Uh, thank you, Rabbi. It's wonderful to be here with you after too long a time. Yes, we, we do know each other. It's been a very long time since we've been together. And as we were talking uh, before we started the recording, we have a lot of friends in common. So let's let's start with one of your closest friends. I think you could, you would call him that. In addition to reading Wisdom is Bliss to get ready for this conversation, I also picked up your previous book, Man of Peace, the illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And, you know, I'm in the bookstore and I couldn't help but notice that the selection of books on Buddhism, I mean, this, I live in Middle Tennessee. The religion section is big, but it's all Protestant Christianity. There's a small little half a shelf for Judaism and half a shelf for Islam. But there there are a number of Buddhist books, but they're dominated by two authors. One is the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, and the other is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I'm just wondering, since they're they're so popular, and I imagine they're popular with the same demographic of Americans. I wonder if you see any parallels between the two teachers, not so much parallels between Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, that's going to take us way into the weeds, but just the way they present Buddhism to an American audience. I I don't know if that's too much to ask or not. Well, no, but uh, it could be a long answer or a short answer. I think both of them, their hearts are in the right place, I think is the thing to say. And they present uh, the teachings of Buddha in a very friendly and easygoing way, in in different different styles, though rather rather different styles. Thich Nhat Hanh particularly has a really lovely way of trying to bring it into every moment, everyday life sort of thing, and um, a little bit more sort of be here now, a little easier actually for the general public, and with very charming and creative things like. Uh, when you stop at a red light, say thanks to the red light for giving you a moment of peace where you don't have to worry about running into anything <laughs> instead of being frustrated. You know, he has little things like that that are really wonderful. Dalai Lama doesn't so much get into that. But Dalai Lama has a more kind of rigorous thing about educating yourself 
and developing critical insight and wisdom. But but then his sort of baseline is compassion, kindness, and also a kind of he's he's unique even and a, a little bit different from Thich Nhat Hanh in that he insists that the world is getting better and that the surface terrible turbulence and all the catastrophes and disasters are part of it, but they've been going on for a long time and that they are somehow en masse, you know, the, the larger, with the largest possible vision, they are getting better. And he does that, of course, from a base where his people are being under genocide by the Chinese communist occupation and, and, and oppression of Tibet and the attempt to assimilate Tibetans to make them into Chinese, which is impossible. So therefore, it's destructive. But uh, from that base, he says, well, so I get tired of it. It doesn't work that kind of violence and that kind of uh, stupidity, and they will eventually realize Tibetans can be their friends and we'll all be friends. And I don't, he doesn't call, he calls for dialogue. He won't uh, call for any sort of violent, he discouraged any Tibetan, you know, sort of armed patriots from doing that. He couldn't stop them in, in, during a certain phase in the 50s, but he, he uh, tried to, and it, and it didn't work as he predicted. But he, for whatever the situation, whatever the terrible thing is, you know, dialogue must replace violence in the 21st century and the, the world wars in the 20th century and the peeling off of colonialism in the world was enough. And now we have to have to turn to nature and peacefulness and our human nature. Even he teaches like a secular thing. And the second thing I think that... Uh, more he than, than Tikal Han, he's into not converting anybody to Buddhism. He's into sharing any of thing from the Buddhist technique, sort of repertoire of techniques, huge literature of, of the psyche and of spiritual development and so on, willing to share that, but not with the aim of people becoming Buddhists, not nominal change, he's against it. He says everyone should keep their grandmother's religion and they should, uh, but they can learn from other religions. And he has things he learns from Christianity. He's very interested in Judaism because he believes that Ju the Judaism can teach how to preserve Jewish culture for 1,700 years, 18, 1,900 years without having a country any longer. And that that's an amazing feat. And he wants to try to figure out in case Tibet gets stuck in exile for long. <laughs> So anyway, they're both really great, but they come down to a common thing. Being here and appreciating things now, that would be Thich Nhat Hanh. And the Dalai Lama is, well, there's a lot to learn and educate yourself in a lot of ways, but stick with your own people and be kind and get along with things and be altruistic and things will work out. And um, never mind, you can stay secular even. He doesn't want to convert you away from secularism even if he considers that kind of a world religion. <laughs> so I want, I want to come back to that idea in, in a moment. Yes. In, in a sort of a biographical way. I want to ask you a question about how you yes. came to Tibetan Buddhism. But you raised another issue that I just want to have you touch on. Sure. Uh, I remember that there's a book called The Jew in the Lotus. Oh, yeah. Which is uh, Roger Kamenetz's account of the Dalai Lama inviting all these rabbis yes. to Dharamsala to talk about just what you said. How how do you keep a culture thriving in exile for millennia? Yes. What I mean, you're a, you're a, an activist for Tibetans. Is Tibetan culture being preserved among young people? Are they 
it's very difficult now. And we're in like the fourth or 70 years, however you count generations. It's been 70 years since the Chinese invasion in the 50s. And um, it's very difficult. But uh, in exile, I think it's being well-preserved. And in, chi in China, under the Chinese, Tibet itself, where the vast majority of Tibetans do live, it's been sort of preserved in fits and spurts. You know, the Chinese keep changing their policy. And at first they tried to, they, they acted like they were going to support the culture or they had a Leninist minority policy thing that they tried to keep to. But then they would break that and they would attack religion in particular hugely. And they would try to create a Tibetan culture without religion, which is impossible. And then, then they would sort of crush it completely and arrest people for having a rosary for a while. Then again, they let it flourish. So they would rebuild a few of their cultural sites so they could detract tourism, the Chinese. Then again, they cracked down. And at the moment, they're doubling down, like everyone has noticed, the uh, publicity of, the, of this, this activity in Tibet is not so well ever transmitted to the world. But everybody has seen them in action in the Uyghur people lately, you know, trying to cure them of Islam as if being a Muslim was a disease and, um, and treating them absolutely brutally and invasively and awful. And uh, that has absolutely the, what they've been doing to Tibet on and off for 70 years. But in the last 10, doubling or 15, really doubling down in the worst way. And so, uh, you know, I, the Tibet House, which I co-founded, uh, with other people, uh, it, uh, uh, it our job is to see to trying to a make it known to other people around the world, and b to help Tibetans keep it going, and that's a tough job. It's a kind of almost some people would say impossible, but we think it's doable. And there are Tibet houses we've helped seed some of them around the world uh, that have the same role. They're not religious; they're they're cultural preservation and promotion organizations, but not religious, educational, you know? And uh, so he, so that's the, that's sort of the plan. And one the one good thing is the Dalai Lama himself is a kind of anchor, huge anchor. And the Chinese, of course, are desperately hoping he'll die soon. <laughs> He's 86. But he has promised his people he'll live to 110 minimally. But the point is, even he does die, he'll come back because he reincarnates, at least as an institution. <laughs> and right. the Tibetans will still have him. To them, he's the Messiah. You understand? Sure, sure. But the Chinese, the Chinese are going to claim their own fifteen. Oh, of course they will. But that will be completely ignored by the Tibetans, like they ignore the pension one. Yeah, unless right. and forced yeah. in, the, you know, under a gunpoint to say hello or something. Otherwise, yeah. they call yeah. him the fake Lama. That's what he's known as in Tibet. And, they, and if they try that with the with the Dalai Lama, which they tend to, I am sure, then that will fail as far as. Tibetans go, maybe they can pretend outside they did something, but uh, they will fail. And I don't believe, I believe by the time he goes, I think they themselves will have gone like Russia and they'll be in a multi-party system and there'll still be a power clique, of course, probably in China, like you have the KGB still there as the oligarchs in Russia, but it won't be like it is now. So they will be happy to have a little more diversity, I think, by wow. the time Dalai Lama does make the transition. That's a very optimistic view. And it I is. Hope, so that's I his view, right. and that's mine. And when I see it as a reasonable thing. I mean, remember, remember, whoever would have predicted, very few people predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union. True. They were going to be there forever. They were super strong, blah, blah, blah. You know? And now it's just Putin and his cronies. That's it.
Yeah, well, I mean, there, we, we could have a whole discussion about why the Soviet Union, maybe, you know, why I, I think it might have collapsed and why that may or may not have any connection to what's going on in China. But that really is not our topic. You know, when, when His Holiness says that you should stick with your grandmother's religion, yes. I, I have to ask you, I mean, you didn't do that. Well, no, uh, but I was not really into my grandmother's religion. You know, I didn't actually know my grandmother. Ah. And uh, so I keep reassuring his holiness when he, although his holiness put a lot of pressure on me over the decades, because in my first decade or so of being a convert to Buddhism, my notion of Buddhism was very much like a philosophy, a yoga, more than some sort of dogmatic belief system, because I was against all dogmatic belief systems. That's why I like Buddhism, because of emptiness, you know, Nagarjuna, the critical philosophy component of Buddhist and Buddhist science, what I consider the psychological science. So, you know, in a way, I'm not a really super card-carrying Buddhist, like, but I was thinking it was really the best and great, you know. And he put a lot of pressure on me about, you know, the Western religions. Monotheism can enable someone to become enlightened. Don't worry. Thomas Merton straightened me out on that one. I got to see it myself as I traveled the world. You know, I visited uh, the, the Wailing Wall, and I felt the power of, Jew, of Jewish piety and so on. He likes the Muslims. They get along with him. He doesn't think the Muslims are any worse than anybody else. And even our own Buddhists can be horrible, like in, in Sri Lanka and, and Burma at the moment. And so he's, uh, you know, he's very pragmatic about it. And he, he doesn't mean that there wouldn't be maybe some change in the theologies of some religions. If someone learns from other religions some better ideas and some way of getting along with science and some more wisdom-oriented stuff, you know, where I mean they would they would be a more relaxed. And actually, that's one reason he really liked Buddhism. You know, I was there when Roger wrote that book. I was there with all those rabbis. And actually, Blue Greenberg made me an honorary rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> and Zalman Schachter was there, and the very orthodox Yitz Greenberg, her husband, was there. And uh one thing that they impressed on His Holiness was that different rabbis in different brands very have a lot of disagreement among them. So in fact, one of them made the great dictum at some point that they didn't really full agree about almost anything. And they all kind of, then they all agreed with that, that they didn't agree. <laughs> and then somebody pointed out, well, you all just agreed now that you don't agree. And then everybody uh -huh. laughed. It was a great moment in that. In the, that was a wonderful series of meetings of over a week or so, four or five days, really. Yeah. Kind of. I, I, and I was I, honored I, and privileged to be the mediator, you know, Tibetan, uh, I, I don't know Hebrew, but Tibetan English, you know, and conceptually no. also a mediator. And it was a lot of fun. I, I was very disappointed that I wasn't invited to go on that trip. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> well, that's Charlie Halpern's fault. Don't, ask, don't look at me. <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to blame you for that. Uh, <laughs> Let me ask you this about just to follow up a little bit more on, on first of all, what was your grandmother's religion? I, I'm assuming. Uh, I, well, I think she must have been a Presbyterian, like my mother nominally yeah. was. And uh, although when I became a Buddhist monk, my mother said to me, I should have known from the beginning this was like, this was you. And I said, What do you mean? And she said, When you were baptized, you made such a fuss. And you kicked and thrashed, and you kicked over the baptismal dish. Oh, wow. And it drenched the priest's cassock, <laughs> and he was all offended. And maybe he wrung a few drops out of his dripping white, you know, that thing they wear, over your flailing toes. But you were barely baptized, she said. 
you know, but I consider myself baptized because I, I think it's an honor. I like Jesus. I consider him a Buddha yeah. uh, of a sort or a Buddha Bodhisattva. You know, there are some Bodhisattvas who are already been Buddhas and then they come back as Bodhisattvas. And, uh, and I, I, I'm honored to have done that, you know. And I just don't like, I don't like any form of any one of the religions, including Buddhism, that tries to use the religion to prop up some sort of authoritarian social structure. You know, we're the big boss. You have to believe and don't, you don't have to have blind faith also. You don't have reasonable faith and just march and march and, tr and attack the neighboring uh, country, you know, in case we tell you, <laughs> and God is on your side. You know, that I don't like, or Buddha is on your side. I really don't like that in any religion. Yeah, I mean, you write, you write in Wisdom is Bliss. I mean, you define Buddhism as, you call it a realism rather than a religion. Exactly. And that's what you're, you're really exactly. talking But about. then, on the other hand, I, I had a big argument with His Holiness recently, which we never really settled, but I, I think he follows it maybe. But at one point, he was invited to Kuwait, although he ended up not going because of some Chinese interference. But he was invited to for dialogue there. And then I said, Your Holiness, please, when you go there, don't do what you do in India. And then repeating it from here because he does it so often in India, where in India they have the idea that Hinduism and the Abrahamic religions are theistic, because they believe in a creator, and Buddhism is non-theistic, because they don't believe in a creator. And he goes, he says that. So I said, please don't say that there, because they won't, they don't have the attitude of the Indians, and then they'll think you're an atheist. And then they'll, you know, they, they subconsciously even, they'll cut off their sense of wishing to dialogue with you. And actually, you are theistic. Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism is theistic. It's just not creator theistic or monotheistic. And he had to agree with that, although he resisted a little bit because he likes to tend to the secular, you know, but being practical, you know. But then I, and then I had to even say, well, you know, what's the name of the town, which is your capital when you're in Tibet, when you were in Tibet, Lhasa. Lhasa means God, <laughs> place of God, you know, Lhasa. And the point is, they just don't have the idea that the, the creator that the Indians, believe, from Buddha's own time, not just Tibet, but from Buddha's own time, that Brahma, who some Indians at that time thought was the creator, uh, uh, they, they have Brahma talking in a Buddhist text saying, actually, I'm not the creator, I'm just the most powerful person here. And I do my best. But he tells Buddha, tell people I didn't create everything because I'm not responsible when horrible things happen to them and they shouldn't be mad at me. I try to do my best for everybody. I'm very kind and I'm a loving God, but I'm not an omnipotent God. You know, and so that's in the Buddhist literature from the very beginning. But it doesn't deny the existence of Brahma, in other words. It just denies sort of a degree of power to that God, you know says that he's very helpful, but not omnipotent. You know? So, in, in, Including Buddha is not omnipotent either. You know, that's, they're very key about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I never think of Buddhism in those terms. So, so but, but my, understand, I'm, my understanding of Tibetan Buddhism is admittedly weak. Um, right. Well, it's not just Tibetan, it's Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism, and by hint, also Theravada. But overtly, Theravada is dual, what they call dualistic. So in Theravada, you know, when you get to Nirvana, you leave the world. But in Mahayana, the world is Nirvana. So the reality of the world is an infinite loving energy. It's just not a person. 
it, and therefore any any god, and there are many, who channels that infinite loving energy, or even a Buddha, or the Buddha or Bodhisattva, is like divine in their ability to bless other beings and to and to transmit that energy. But the basic energy is available to everyone. And everyone's failure to know that, that their actual reality is loving, they're floating on an ocean of loving bliss that sustains them through the night, so to speak, and through the day and through life and past death. And that, and so that is theism. It's a kind of, I call, and then Zola said to me, well, what, should, what kind of theism should I say then? But not agreeing to say it to the people in Kuwait when we had this argument. And I said, well, one term I use is infinitheism. But he didn't like the polysyllabic nature of that. <laughs> I said, infinitheism, if you say it quickly, it's not too bad. There's only three syllables. Infinitheism, in the sense that you're saying there's, there's a divine energy, what people think of as the positive side of a divine energy, not the one sending the flood, turning people to pillars of salt, who are partying too much, this kind of thing. The Job type, playing tricks on the devil, you know, or showing off to the devil. But the positive side of the God, that the that element of theism is there, but the personality of the sort of associated with a particular nation is not there, and it's it's there for every being. In other words, you know, it's not behind the divine right of kings. It's not behind the divine right of some high priest. It's there for any everyone who knows that it's there, and the people sure. who don't feel that it's there is because they don't know it. It's not because they did anything wrong. It's but it's because they haven't learned it. They haven't figured it out, and it's. And blind faith doesn't get you, but reasonable faith helps. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26 at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. So when you posit this infinite, I guess you could even say loving energy. Right. Clear light of the void, they call it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where, Where does evil come from in that sense? Is it simply the ignorance, human ignorance? It comes from ignorance. And it comes from a being because of being ignorant and thinking that they are alienated from the from the full blast loving energy of the universe, and therefore they're facing uh, they as a single small individual are facing it potentially infinite, although they they create different myths that it's not really infinite, so they don't feel completely overwhelmed. But they're facing a huge number of other people, other beings germs, you know, uh, and mythically vast deities and so forth, and culturally. And, and so they want to get more for themselves, so they get greedy, and then they harm people by taking away their stuff or consuming them or using them. Or they wish they think to get more stuff, they have to drive other people away and, and kill them and harm them, and then they do evil. But they do it because of not knowing that actually they're interconnected with all the other beings, that there's no ultimate enemy of theirs and they and they and they are not going to be more happy the more they fight and the more they they do e- evil out of hatred or greed uh then the worse they get because the more alienated they feel the more strong they've made the division between themselves and others by being harmful to others and therefore then their evil seems to know no bounds but actually it does know a bound because 
they're the good but the good guys that that good loving energy is there even for those bad guys and eventually they they realize they're creating hell for themselves you know by being harmful to others you know which is what how evil is defined based on the ignorance of alienation from the real energy of the universe it sounds in a sense like uh, vedanta it's and, very and... close to vedanta <clears throat> Uh, and actually, radical Vedanta, like Shankaracharya, the sort of supreme, what he called unqualified non-duality form of Vedanta, was rejected by later Vedantists for being too Buddhistic. They, they have their qualified types of Vedantas. And the reason they did it is that the radical non-dualism relativizes the caste system, relativizes the sort of idea of the absoluteness of the deity it relativizes everything because actually the 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 non-duality of everything means all this relative stuff is itself all holy stuff it's all it's all nirvana if you if we knew what it was right so the <laughs> distinctions between high caste and low are yes. eliminated in this that's right in, in, in that radical form but the yeah. most of Vedantists are not although they honor shankaracharya they call their leaders the shankaracharya nowadays but uh, they later, uh, from the uh, 9th, 10th, 11th century, the later Vedantists, they rejected him as too extreme. And they called him a Prachanabhauda, a crypto-Buddhist. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. I know I've read a lot of... The Buddhists were always critical of the rigidity of the caste system. They, they, they were practical and they knew there was a caste system. But they said it's... Uh, but Buddha accepted disciples from all levels of society and women on top of it which was right. even more harder for the Brahmins yeah, to swallow. More difficult. So, so let, me, <laughs> let me ask you this, and hopefully this is not too esoteric. I'm, I'm wondering, and you make a, a big deal about this in Wisdom is Bliss, the, the notion, you know, you talk about the realistic worldview, yes. which is rooted in the idea of shunya or emptiness. Yes. It seems like that's what you're talking about even now when you talk about the radical non-duality. Right. So... One of the things that always troubles me about emptiness is the fact that in English, and, and I, I think this is true in Sanskrit, but yes. uh, that shunya and emptiness are nouns when I, I would rather have them be gerunds. You know, like, so, so when the Heart Sutra says form is emptiness, emptiness is form, if I were translating it, I would write, Forming is emptying, and emptying is forming. That well, everything you do, is. A, you can do that. You can do that. But, but the thing is that there is a gerund. Shunyata is from a verb shvi, which means to swell. Actually, which is ancient Indo-European, because when a seed swells, when it moistens, an empty space forms inside the seed, where I guess the DNA of the tree or the flower or whatever it is then can can expand into the into the into whatever it is going to grow from that seed. And uh, uh, so, but emptiness is very distinguished from nothingness. And the, see, emptiness guarantees the relativity of everything, actually. So the, the discovery of emptiness, which I consider a scientific discovery, and I think the best Buddhist philosophers would agree, uh, is, I mean, in the sense that it's an observation of, of nature. Uh, in that sense, scientific is not just a dogma. And what it is, is that everything in nature dissolves under analysis if fully analyzed, which our wonderful materialist scientists have kind of ratified for us in the uncertainty principle and in quantum, in the, in the quantum analysis of the subatomic components of, of atoms, 
that there is no final core component that does not dissolve under analysis. Yeah, and that was that is what emptiness means. Yeah, so there's, there's means, nothing there. Only yeah. only this process. Well, yeah. Well, there's actually nothing. Is even nothing isn't there. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> you don't find anything. You mean, <laughs> but we say there's nothing. nothing there. We think we found nothing. Right. Exactly. But actually, it's just that we, we don't find anything. And so the key thing is, and that not finding anything is the finding of emptiness. And what that then guarantees is that the human tendency to take our notions and and project absoluteness into them. Most importantly, the notion of ourself, you know, our own subjectivity, that we're the absolute and the, everything else is other than us. That's a sort of wired in thing from our animal background, the evolutionary background. And uh, that is the most harmful thing because that's the root of us making a completely inescapable fact of our being separate from everything else, which then puts us in a losing position of losing out to everything else space and time, you know, being in being endless and infinite. So emptiness empties the self of any non-relative self so that the self becomes a relational matrix, a thing that guides our relations, but it's itself relative. It's not absolute. And therefore, others have equality to us. And therefore, the, we are not, we are, we are relatively different and responsible, but that difference is an arbitrary it is trans it's transcendable. We can identify and empathize with others. And then the, the Buddha awareness is where we identify with all others, actually. And we have this kind of amazing paradoxical oneness where we feel one with everyone, but also they are still themselves. But we it's just our feel that feeling that we feel that we're one doesn't necessarily make them feel that we're one. So they still remain themselves. And uh, so it becomes paradoxical at that point. You, you know, that's why he says it's inexpressible and why it's not a dogma. But, but what emptiness is, is the opening the door into the full-blown nature of relativity, which then is why they say wisdom becomes compassion and love. Because if you inevitably, you're, as you know, remember Paul Tillich with his absolute concern and relative concern, worldly concern, but your absolute concern becomes the amelioration of the relative. And so that's that's all because there is no absolute outside the relative for you to try to go to to obey to to devalue anything about the relative. But then within the relative, there are more and less valuable things, and a being that's suffering that's less valuable than that being being happy. So you want to make everybody happy. So then you become love, a loving person. You know, is the idea yeah. that's the idea but, anyway. Right. Well, and I know we're we're running out of time, but but I, let me just. That's Throw terrible. this at you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I want to have you on my podcast. Can you? Would you ever go on somebody <laughs> I, else's? I would. Oh, absolutely. I would be okay, honored to be on your I'm podcast. Okay, let's set that up. I'm going to hold you to that. Okay, I'd be happy I to do that. I don't have a time limit. <laughs> but, um, but, but let me let me just ask you yes. this, and then I've got a final question to, to bring okay. the conversation okay. to a close. Um, it seems to me that uh, this notion of of shunya of emptiness which leads us to this connection of prajna wisdom with karuna compassion, all, all the things you've just been talking about. That's like the genius of Buddhism. But, and, and like you said, it's, it's um, I guess, ineffable. It's hard, hard to articulate it, but it is experienceable. Yes. That's the, that's the difference. It's not simply, this is not just an idea that you can knock around, you know, over coffee. You can actually experience it as an existential 
I hate to use the word reality, but as an existential reality. And that's, that's what, what makes Buddhism so important is that it gives you not only this idea set, but yeah. a way to test it in a sense. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, it's just like that brings it kind of back to Thich Nhat Hanh's sort of style, why he's so great. Because, for example, you can describe an apple and the process of eating it and the chemistry of its taste and as ripeness and juiciness and blah, blah, blah. You can, you can label it with concept after concept. And when you smunch down on a really delicious apple and you eat it, it's beyond all description. <laughs> yeah. Just, the poet, you know, Emily Dickinson might give you a good angle. But even she cannot capture in words experience it, when right. we and when we learn to experience beyond our what our concepts lead us to expect to experience, then we find much more richness and we observe much more richness in the world around us than than we we have labels for, and right. that's why they say that uh, you know we can we can experience we experience in a way that nirvana of eating an apple. You know that that the whole process and the apples growing and presenting itself and being there to us and whatever, and then you know some scientists will say, "Well, apple's just doing that, hoping you're like a you're a baboon <laughs> and you're going to go and spit the seed somewhere, right, right. so more trees will grow." So yeah. it's a self-centered apple seed that is doing it. But right. you know, fine. You know what I mean? Fine. <laughs> but that that's good too. That I mean, that's a you know, that's a that's a, that's a perspective. But all uh, verbal expressions are perspectives, and they they can be valid, invalid in a context. But there's no final dogma. And actually, uh, I used to have a dialogue with Peter Berger many, for many years. And uh, we became really good friends. At, when we were first dialoguing, he challenged me. And he said that the Abrahamic traditions could never really meet with Buddhism, that there was always this gulf between them and so forth and so on. And uh, he challenged me to disprove that, you know, as a thesis. And I said, I gave the credit to the Jews, and I said that their notion of a God that you couldn't pronounce the name, and that, because it, it was beyond human conception, and they answered Moses, you know, I am what I am, or whatever you want to translate it, you know the original, I don't. And this as a critique of all those Middle Eastern city cults, you know, with the goddesses and the pharaohs and the temples and the whole thing. And they had a deity that was everywhere, and it, you know, it was sort of all in all, you know, and uh, and that's I said that connects to emptiness. In other words, they emptied all the idols and the anti-idolatry thing that they have in in, in the Abrahamic traditions, although they 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 you know it, it's, everything is imperfect that humans do, but you know that idea that connects to the emptiness idea. And he he got it. he he's he was so intelligent, you know. I, I'm sure you read Peter Berger's works, and. Uh, yeah. Wonderful work, sociology of religion, but uh, but he he got that, and uh, I sincerely believe that. Actually, it's why I really like Judaism a lot. Yeah, I think I think it's true, but I think it's true for all religions when you get to their mystic core. Yes. they they all they all go to that same exactly uh, that same. Place. Yeah, but the only but reason it's mystic is because the authorities in the different yeah. cultures are always trying to create a version that makes them absolute authority over the masses of the people. Right. And exactly. so then the, the mystic has to hide. <laughs> yeah, that, that sadly is the case. Let me ask you one last question, and, sure. and that'll bring this sure. to a close. I want to go back to just something personal for you. you know, you've been in the Tibetan Buddhism world for, for decades. 
60 years, yeah. 60 years. So I'm curious how your relationship to Buddhism has changed over the 60 years. Well, it's become more and more fervent in one way. Although, again, like I say in, the, in my Wisdom is Bliss book, it's not Buddhism that I'm into promoting. Although there are many Buddhists and people are free to be Buddhists. And, and there are a lot more than people think because the Chinese communists, that's a huge, you know, there's four or five hundred million just there if they were able to be counted. And, uh, uh, but I'm not much into, I, I, I do, the Dalai Lama finally converted me about 30 years ago. I think about halfway through my progression in Buddhism to not thinking that it's best for everybody to be Buddhist. I do not think that. But I do think it would be better for everyone to be enlightened. So I want to see enlightened Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Taoists, secularists, whatever it is, enlightened, because that means really realistic about the life. And it means intelligent about believing in their own ability to understand it. And it means compassionate and friendly and wanting everything and optimistic, th thinking that everything can succeed. For example, you know, my whole purpose in the Wisdom is Bliss book is to try to cheer people up. That's why I changed noble truth into friendly fact, you know, to make it simple and easy for people, which is just a, it's just a curriculum, basically. It's not anything you have to believe in. It's something you might try out and get, without becoming a Buddhist. And uh, Dalai Lama is has one who really has taught me that, and I really give him the credit for that. And he was doing it long before we had the moral majority and the sort of, you know, the, the uprising of religions politically. You know, when all social science people felt all oh, religions are all melting away, they were all Marxists practically, and the religions are fading away. They'll vanish before the march of triumph of materialist science, which is another wrong religion, I think, <laughs> scientism. But Dalai Lama even converted me to seeing the value in in, in, in materialism, as a secularism, as long as it's humanistic. And, uh, and so I just wanted to everybody to cheer up because, for example, I'm a great-grandfather now, and I'm very much on Greta Thunberg's wagon. I wish I could be more. I, just, I don't have the power to really push it as much as I wish, but I try. I went to Al Gore. I studied. I got all the slides. You know, I studied on the, what he calls Climate Reality Project. And... Um, I really feel the biggest obstacle to us meeting the climate challenge is I believe that everybody has a little bit given up. They think human beings just are, and some of, some of it is because religions have told them that, that human beings are basically bad, and they'll be okay in the afterlife if they do a little good, but they're basically are sinners or they're evil or something. And uh, or the materialists tell them that it will just be nothing. And it, it doesn't matter even if everything is all blown up. And uh, so they just, you know, I, I've addressed large audiences in the last 10 years and uh, more than that. And I, I sometimes will get to the topic of who here in this room thinks really we're going to survive this climate catastrophe and this crisis. And at first, a bunch of hands go up, and then they say, come on now, really? Do you really think we'll meet the challenge? We'll rise above ExxonMobil and whatever it is, you know? And then very few stay up. And, uh, and that's, that's the danger, I think. For, for various reasons, people don't really get out like Greta Thunberg and school strict for climate, you know? School strike for climate, she said. And you know you're stealing our future," she says. You know that's so wonderful that that poor child. 
And uh, she's like an oracle of the planet, you know. And um, I really am into it. And so I w- I'm hoping by helping people decide maybe reality is happiness. Maybe it is goodness. Maybe God is good if they think of it as God. Maybe clear light of the void. Maybe nirvana is the real thing here if they think of it as some form of emancipation, you know, moksha, you know, liberation. And then they'll decide, well, in that case, let's really work on the planet now. We can, we can do it. You know, like, remember Obama? Yes, we can. And then the minute he was in power, oh, no, we can't quite get to it. (laughs) Well, I I hope you're right, and that's a good optimistic place to end. Okay. Our guest today, Robert... Thank you, Robert. My pleasure. Our guest today, Robert Thurman, is the author of Wisdom is Bliss, four friendly fun facts that can change your life. You can learn more about his work on his website, bobthurman.com. Bob, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much, Rabbi. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.